It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, it's Manveen here. I'm handing the podcast over to the journalist Emily Sargent today for part three of her special investigation. If you haven't heard the earlier parts, do go back and have a listen. She's looking at a fascinating and until now extremely secretive practice that still takes place all over Britain, conversion therapy. This is Thinking Straight. Last episode on Thinking Straight. A lot of people don't realise that it's happening all the time over here and it takes place in so many different ways. I've got to be honest, I have really mixed feelings about you doing this. I'm happy to do it with you. I'm happy to explore it with you. I just want you to know that it's coming from a place of complete love and acceptance. Conversion therapy can take many extreme forms. Everyone's shouting, screaming in tongues, speaking in tongues. He said, in that case, we have to do a past life regression on you. Lots of people are pressing down on your stomach. But most often, it looks very similar to what we would consider as traditional counselling. Did mum and dad hug you growing up? Were they affectionate? You're listening to Thinking Straight, a special investigative series from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Sargent. Today, the psychological impact of conversion therapy. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode explores traumatic experiences and includes references to suicide. Last episode, I found a woman named Carol, not her real name, who agreed to take me through a process called conversion therapy. I don't know if you know much about the whole conversion therapy. Have you heard about the controversy about that? Have you looked into that at all? Not because I want to be straight, but because I wanted to know firsthand what strategies practitioners use to try to suppress or change someone's sexuality or gender identity. Last session, we reached the point where Carol had agreed to explore conversion with me. To prepare for what that might feel like and what techniques might be used, I wanted to speak to as many survivors as I could. So, exorcism, basically you have many people who hold leadership positions within the church praying for you, laying their hands on you, This is Justin Beck. He was raised in an evangelical, born-again Christian family in a town outside Glasgow. 
for six years, from the ages of 17 to 23, he underwent intense gay conversion therapy of an extreme religious kind. And sometimes that meant exorcisms. We're not suggesting that Carol would perform this kind of extreme practice, but this is Justin's experience. There's a verse in the Bible about how demons reside in the belly. So lots of people are holding your stomach or pressing down on your stomach. Everyone's shouting, screaming in tongues, speaking in tongues. I would be crying and then eventually you would fall back and then they're on top of you. So you're lying on the floor, people are pressing down on your stomach. And again, to this day, I don't know what the sign is that it worked because then you're left. And for me personally, that's the worst bit. That's the most traumatic bit because you're lying there by yourself, eh, totally emotionally traumatised, shaking from head to toe. No one's coming to see if you're okay. By the end of the six years that I went through it, you kind of get used to the pattern of it. And then by so 22, 23, I would then be sitting up and then looking over at the boy in the church that I fancied and would be giving into temptation by looking at him. But I would realise, no, I, I, I still fancy you eh, and know that, that it hadn't worked. Earlier this year, Boris Johnson wrote a letter to the Evangelical Alliance, a group representing 3,500 churches across Britain. In that letter, he sought to reassure them after they'd expressed concerns about a ban on conversion therapy. We will continue, he wrote, to allow adults to receive appropriate pastoral support, including prayer, in churches and other religious settings, in the exploration of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Which doesn't sound that alarming, right? Maybe not. Unless you were to find a page tucked away on the Evangelical Alliance's website that reads... We encourage congregations to welcome and accept sexually active lesbians and gay men. However, they should do so in the expectation that they will come in due course to see the need to be transformed. We urge gentleness, patience and ongoing pastoral care during this process and after a person renounces same-sex relations. What would it mean for a ban if it comes into effect with a loophole allowing for prayer-based therapy to continue. Being a member of my family church and Christianity and developing a faith and a personal relationship with God was a massive part of my upbringing. All of our family social activities centred around the church and teen club on a Monday, Bible study on a Wednesday, a discovery group on a Thursday youth fellowship on a Friday and then obviously services on a Sunday, one in the morning and one in the evening. And then usually on a Sunday afternoon, you would be socialising with other born again Christian families and then going back to church in the evening. For me, between the ages of zero to 13, developing my own personal relationship and faith with God was a massive part of, of my upbringing. But at 13, hormones kicked in. I was attracted to other boys and a uh, was looking at men and, and finding men attractive. It was very, very scary, very confusing. At 17, Justin left his own family church to join a Pentecostal church in the neighbouring town. It's a common misconception that Pentecostal churches are just in the Bible Belt of America. 
they're rife within the UK. And for me, from the ages of 17 to 23, that was the six years of conversion therapy in the Pentecostal church. Leaving church after an exorcism, Justin's overwhelming feeling was one of guilt. You would feel that it it hadn't worked, so there must be something wrong, there must be something evil living within me. It's emotional trauma, it's emotionally traumatised, like I would be shaking, I would be visibly shaking from from head to toe. And like if everybody in the church knew, because I was doing this for six years, so there's a, a level of embarrassment and shame as well, because everyone's looking at you knowing the sin that you're giving into. At no point anyone would come up to me or pull me aside and go, Justin, do you know what? You're just gay and that's okay. No one ever, ever said that. When I do look back on that period of my life, the overwhelming emotion that I remember is utter loneliness. Not just loneliness, utter loneliness. I didn't have anybody. I didn't have any support system. So the this, the sheer sense of utter loneliness was deafening at that time. I grew up in North London in a modern Orthodox Jewish community. This is Maya, not her real name. The general premise of modern orthodoxy is following the traditions of your ancestors, but also living in the real world. Faith was a given, so God was my father and my king. Growing up, she struggled to square her sexuality with her faith. In my younger teenage years, if I had crushes on girls, I just shut it down. And then when I wasn't into guys, I had this narrative of being like a late developer and thinking that I hadn't started puberty until quite late. But as soon as an attractive woman would walk past, I just knew there was a very different thing. I didn't need to be with a woman to know how it felt so different. And so most of my teenage years were just living on high alert on thinking about how I would be perceived by other people. But that didn't affect my relationship with God because I just had faith and I just thought it will change with time. Maya believed that eventually she'd come to develop romantic or sexual feelings towards men. It was only when I got to university that I started to get a bit concerned that I was not getting the feelings. And I kind of thought that there were probably three routes for me, that either I believed that the Torah was divine and it couldn't be changed, and I therefore had to live according to the book and become straight or live a life alone. The other option was the text was divine and I'm rejected in Leviticus and therefore I have to reject religion because there's no space for me. And the third option was that I would take the Torah with a pinch of salt and see it as a history book. And so at that time I took number one. I decided this was the time to devote myself to my religion, to my community, um, to everything I believed in. And so, Maya joined a Jewish youth outreach group in London that organised a summer trip to Israel. And on that trip, one night, I was sat next to um, the rabbi. And he was a very cool, young, fun rabbi. And he sat me down and he said, you're not looking happy. And I said, well, you know, I'm seeing a guy at the moment and I just don't feel like it's right. And he said to me, is it this guy or is it guys in general? And I kind of nodded at the the guys in general part. The next day I, I woke up in a massive panic thinking, oh my God, I've told this guy everything and he knows my biggest secret. And so he kind of became my go-to supportive 
person. So the the rabbi that you confided in, was he British and he was with you on the trip? Yeah. Um, it was like a private, secretive thing where I would go to his office and we'd have these talks and he would kind of take on a therapist role and reassure me. And gradually, you know, he said to me, you know, I can help. The rabbi told Maya that he knew many people in Jerusalem who'd experienced same-sex feelings that they were able to overcome, that there was help available. It's something that comes up again and again when speaking to survivors. These claims that the therapist has helped lots of people before. A great track record. Change is possible. And so, Maya's conversion therapy began. I told my parents I was leaving university and I was on a mission to become straight. So that therapy was a talking therapy. Um, It wasn't anything extreme. The therapist's idea was that you would work through any issues you'd had, so any confidence blocks or anything you're uncertain about. And through that, you would then reach your true self, which innately was a heterosexual self. How did you feel? I felt relieved that here was a chance where I could open up and overcome through this elaborate plan that I'd been told that I could finally have the future that I'd been promised and I was hopeful at the same time I was also very apprehensive because I thought this is my only shot at creating this life that I want he would tell me that in Judaism everyone has a purpose in life we're all here for a reason and their whole life's journey is to try and figure out what their test is and to overcome it and he said you're so lucky you know what your test is and this is your challenge and we're going to help you win basically and so we would write down prayers and I would go home and pray things weren't really changing. So the treatment evolved into something more like the sessions I've been having and the sort promoted by groups like X Out Loud. Looking at my parents and my childhood and you know he said your parents aren't role models you know your dad and mum were at work in the day Your dad's a little bit effeminate, so you didn't see a macho guy and and your mum wasn't available either. And so you're looking for a nurturing figure. And I remember at the time thinking that's a bit odd because there was a lot of research to say that that isn't the case. And most people do have working parents who are not gay. But I so wanted it to work. It then took another turn where I was asked to question my own thoughts and feelings and open up to this therapist who was a man in his 50s and tell him all about any sexual fantasies I'd had, any feelings I'd had about the crushes. It left me in a very vulnerable place. Having little success, things took an even more experimental route. So we did anti-trauma rapid eye movement therapy, which basically is what people who go through extreme abuse or traumatic experience goes through. Rapid eye movement therapy, or EMDR, is a complex form of therapy that requires specific training, particularly as it can bring up really difficult feelings and emotions. And so he did this to try and help me feel less aversion to kissing guys, which, again, didn't work. Later on, the feelings when I left sessions were quite mixed. So some sessions, if I hadn't had a crush or an attraction to someone that week. I felt elated at the end of the session. I felt so close to this goal. My sex drive had been completely depleted because we'd been analysing everything so much, but I'd been convinced that this was movement. And so it was an amazing feeling. 
But the majority of sessions followed weeks when Maya had experienced some kind of attraction to a woman, a fleeting crush or a moment of interest. It was just a surge of desperation and devastation. And I mean, I would come out of the session wanting to immediately pay for another session because I wanted to speed up the process so quickly and I'd ask for homework. And, you know, I'd walk back alone crying in the darkness to my seminary. By this point, Maya had been in conversion therapy for around a year and had spent thousands of pounds. He said to me, I I want you to honestly tell me you haven't gone through any form of trauma because most of the patients I have have been abused and they don't want to deal with it. I really want you to stop and think, have you been through any form of trauma? And there was no trauma. My, My family are perfectly normal, loving stable, good family. And he said, "Okay, well, in that case, we have to do a past life regression on you. Past life regression is a form of meditation or hypnosis where, in theory, you travel back into a past life or previous incarnation of yourself, in this case, to search for a sin or trauma that they might use to explain Maya's being a lesbian. And by working through it, you come out the other side cured. So I sat on a call with my therapist and with this other so-called past life regression therapist and nothing happened. So I came up with a made up story. And at that point, I'd had enough. You know, I'd come home crying. I'd walk back alone, like looking at the sky, thinking, God, I've done everything. Now it's your turn. I really tried everything. This is something I heard again and again from survivors. The idea that there is some trauma in your past life that could explain your being gay or trans. Some people call it the trauma hunt. This felt to me like a deeply troubling pattern when you consider how many people have experienced some form of trauma, women and trans people especially. To manipulate painful past experiences in this way can have huge consequences for mental health. Ultimately, at 23, I was completely suicidal. Here's Justin again. I planned my suicide, knew when I was going to do it, knew how I was going to do it. So it was ultimately survival at then going, right, okay, if this this isn't going to work, what else can I do? And I was very, very lucky that I sought licensed counselling therapy in time. So, yeah. What was the moment that led you to take that step away from this process to seek that professional help? It was such a dark place. I had started to like not attend as frequently. It was luck. It was Christmas time. I happened to Google spirituality, sexuality, counselling, Glasgow. And my therapist was one of the first things that popped up in the results. And then I emailed him. Um, And then I had my first session with them either on Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas Eve. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that that's the man that saved my life. From then, it was a decade of person-centred therapy um, and unpacking 23 years of internalised homophobia. And and then the, the reaction that I got from the church when I left kind of solidified in my head. No, do you know what? This is different. You are making a right choice because... All the friends that I'd had from 17 to 23 dropped me finding my therapist. That's the only reason that I'm still here. Justin's experience of suicidal ideation is not unusual. 
And for some, rejection by family members or a dearly loved faith community over their sexuality or gender identity proves to be too much to bear. A study conducted by the Ozan Foundation found that two-thirds of those who go through conversion therapy experience suicidal thoughts, and one-third attempt suicide. You'll hear more from this episode in just a moment. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I was on this night house, feeling rather sorry for myself. This is Matt Mahmoud Ogston. He's telling me about a night out he had in 2001 when he was 23 years old and had recently come out to himself. I didn't really know any gay people. I was sitting there nursing a chicken burger, not feeling very good about myself, but dreaming about a future that I thought might never happen. And then I heard this beautiful, sweet voice say to me, excuse me, may I sit here, please? And in that moment, my whole life changed forever because in that moment, Naz had arrived. From that very first moment that we met each other, Nazar explained to me the pressures that he was on from his deeply religious family and the fact that he thought he would never be able to come out to his parents because he feared the consequences of what might happen. In no time at all, Matt and Naz fell in love. I just wanted to be around him all the time. Both of us were the same. You know, our friends within a matter of weeks were calling us the twins. I'd introduce him to my family as my friend. You know, I took him out to my nan's house as a friend. 
Um, my nan guessed straight away. She didn't tell me this. I never found this out while she was alive, but she guessed straight away. So my family was very accepting of him. Naz graduated from his medical degree, but their life together in Birmingham was a secretive one. We weren't able to walk down the street together. We weren't able to hold hands in public. We had to keep our blinds closed at home for fear of what might happen if his family found out about our relationship. You know, he said if they find out about him being gay and that we're in a relationship, they will come round to, you know, our door and they'll pray on the doorstep and they'll do whatever they can until we're no longer together. Eventually, seeking freedom, Naz and Matt moved to London. London is where we created that wonderful life together. Ten years after that day that we met, in a crowded nightclub, I walked Naz up to the DJ booth and I got down on one knee and I asked Naz, will you marry me? And after the initial look of surprise, he smiled and he said yes. And that was the happiest day of my life. I will never forget that moment. Naz said that he wouldn't want to get married until he was able to invite his mum to the wedding. It didn't matter if she came or not, but he just wanted to be able to invite her to the wedding. But we both knew that would mean that he would have to come out to her, and we both knew that was probably something that would never happen. But we were both content with being together because we knew we were going to spend the rest of our lives together with each other. Three years into their engagement, during Eid celebrations, Naz and Matt visited their respective families back in Birmingham. On their last night, there was a confrontation between Naz and his parents. Matt wasn't there, of course, but later he found out what had happened. There was a confrontation which made Naz break down in tears. Those tears led one of his parents to come running over to him and saying, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Is it because you like men? And Naz, who was a very honest person who didn't know how to lie, he was given the opportunity to do something that he'd always wanted to do, which was to tell his parent who he really was. And in that moment, he did something that he thought was impossible. He responded, yes, it is I'm in love with Matt, we've been together for 13 years, we're engaged and we're going to get married. And in that moment, in that statement of love, instead of being accepted, he was met with the opposite. And he was told by that parent that he had to go to a psychiatrist to be cured, to be cured of being gay. A couple of days later, I, I started a new job and Naz was at home, he'd taken the time off for Eid and he was at home. During that day, the 30th of July, 2014, Matt received two messages telling him to go home. And I wasn't told why I had to go home. And when I spoke to my mum on the phone, asking her, you know, why do I have to go home? She says, please stop asking, just pick up your things, just pack your bag and get home as quick as you can and just run. My heart was racing on the tube and as I ran up the hill, towards the place that we'd recently moved to, I turned around the corner and that's when I saw the crowds gathered, the police tape everywhere, blue lights, people taking photos. And as I pushed past the crowds to get to our front door, I wasn't allowed in. I was led to the police car. That's when I saw a red blanket on the floor. And that's when I began to realise that the man that I loved, my soulmate, my darling Naz, was no longer here. 
I was desperately suicidal after that. I wanted to take my own life and follow the man that I loved. But as Matt mourned, he heard a voice. Not the voice that we all have in the back of our head, but a very loud, demanding voice that said, Matt, I know you're struggling to understand. I know you're struggling to find that reason to stay, but I'm going to ask you to do something. And because you always did everything I asked of you, I know you're going to do this. And he said, I want you to set up a group or something that's going to help other people in our situation so they don't have to go through what we went through. So instead of taking my own life, I walked the other way and I walked back in the flat. I collapsed on the floor, I locked the door and I just started crying. The Naz and Matt Foundation was formed seven years ago, set up to tackle homophobia triggered by religion or culture. We're a very small charity. Our mission is to never let religion, any religion, come in between the unconditional love of a parent and their child. One of the Foundation's key campaign objectives is a ban on conversion therapy. His family believed that being gay was a choice. His family believed that being gay was some sort of disease that had to be removed, that had to be got rid of. While this concept still exists and while this concept is still legal, if we look at it from a parent's perspective, I'm not saying I support this or accept this, but I'm saying just logically looking at it from their perspective, why can't they believe a cure is available if, if it's still legally available? So I said to the therapist, I need you to find me someone. I've put all my hope into you, I've paid you thousands of pounds, and I need an outcome. Eventually, sheer exhaustion and lack of progress brought Maya's conversion therapy to a grinding halt. She asked her therapist if she could speak to one of his former success stories. And he then took another six months to find this woman, which is kind of ironic because if there were loads of success cases, you'd think they would be available. I said to her, you know, are you attracted to guys? And she said, well, ish. And I thought, okay, ish, that's better than nothing. And I said, can you kiss a guy? Can you sleep with a guy? And she said, no. And this was a woman who'd been in therapy for over six years and was considered a a success case. And I remember just kind of staring like into the distance thinking, what the hell do I do now? So I gradually stopped therapy and I had to basically build a life for myself from there. Building a life after conversion therapy is no easy feat. For a while, Maya lived a kind of double life. I'd gone back to university and in the daytime, I'd live this religious life. And in the nighttime, the only way I could meet LGBT people was going out. But still, she yearned for acceptance within her faith. I kept going to Orthodox rabbis. Eventually, I came across Mazzotti Judaism, which is slightly more liberal. And I remember going straight up to the rabbi there and saying to him, I just want you to know that I'm gay. And he said to me, so what? And it was that moment where I thought, okay, here is a place where I I can live the best of both worlds. It was groundbreaking. It was a sense of inner peace. It was like going home. I don't know anyone who's left conversion therapy without having depression and anxiety. Whatever form that conversion therapy is, all of them leave you shattered inside. 
I struggled forming relationships, deep lasting relationships with women because it was very difficult to align my religion and my sexuality. And I'm now on the other side, finally, 10 years later. I still live with panic attacks and anxiety. For Justin, the long-term mental health impact has been huge. I literally had zero self-esteem. I'm six foot four, but I would walk with my head down. I'd be hunched over. I wouldn't look in mirrors or windows because I hated what I saw. I hated summer because that's when guys tend to walk about without their tops on. And I found that attractive. And then I would be giving into temptation. So it would feed that really constant negative cycle of like mental self-flagellation, really. I've worked really hard on developing my self-esteem and loving who I am and celebrating my homosexuality being gay. It's taken a long time. Justin's relationship with his own faith has changed dramatically. I have very negative opinions about organised religion. Obviously, from what I experienced, there's a verse in the Bible about how anyone who has faith the size of a mustard seed can enter the kingdom of heaven. For me, personally, at the moment, that's probably about the size of my faith. I will never step foot in another church again as long as I live because there's too much emotional trauma uh, and negativity there. For the moment, I'm quite happy to have mustard seed-sized faith and that'll do me for just now. (laughs) Ultimately, conversion therapy is enforced repression on people and one of the key things I say when I'm speaking out is conversion therapy doesn't work. (laughs) We know that it doesn't work. Both Justin and Maya entered conversion therapy by choice. They wanted to access the kind of treatment and solutions that religious organisations claim to be able to provide. And that issue of consent is a thorny one when it comes to a conversion therapy ban, particularly as Boris Johnson has specified that he would be seeking to ban coercive, i.e. forced, practices with no mention of any other form. Many survivors, however, say the idea of consent doesn't make any sense Because if the alternative to entering conversion therapy is losing your family, your community, and potentially your physical home, often all at a young age, it's not really a choice. And that's not even taking into consideration the broader internalised homophobia and transphobia that leads so many LGBTQ plus people, like me, to feel so desperate to become straight or cisgender. I think when I first started speaking out about my experience, I would say, well, I consented to it from 17 to 23. I consented to it. But actually, the more that I've spoken out about it and the more that I've researched, there's no way that I could have at 17 gave informed consent for me to go through what I went through. These were people in positions of power in the church. And yes, if the ban goes through the way that it currently goes through, then my type of conversion therapy wouldn't be banned because it's this protection for prayer and pastoral support. Some religious organisations argue that a ban on conversion therapy could infringe on religious freedom and that any ban should exclude prayer therapies and pastoral support, which is something that Boris Johnson has effectively agreed to in his response to the Evangelical Alliance's concerns. 
your right to religion is not a license to discriminate. Your right to religion doesn't mean that you can promote a heteronormative default on to everybody. Your right to religion doesn't mean that you get to withhold rights to children and young people for LGBT inclusive education and, and acceptance. That's not what your right to religion is. Your right to religion is to be able to attend a faith setting and celebrate your faith. Your right to religion gives you the right to wear a yarmulke, a hijab, and not be discriminated against for that. That's what your right to religion is. It's not to give you a carte blanche license to discriminate against LGBT plus people. Being able to do conversion therapy on people, it's not covered under your right to religion. It's just not. I remember the first time I took a girlfriend home, it was just the most awkward experience of my life. My mom just couldn't handle it. She was just kind of cooking and there was no eye contact. But over the years, you know, my mom's got completely used to it. My grandparents also, you know, they're in their 80s and 90s and they're completely supportive. They have met most of my partners. I'm now engaged to someone who's Christian and my parents are over the, over the moon. So it's completely gone full circle. If you were to either speak to your younger self 10 years ago or to another young LGBTQ individual who was struggling with this stuff and trying to reconcile various identities, what would be your advice to that person? I would tell them you are loved as you are and you are good enough as you are. There is nothing wrong with you. There are communities out there where you do not have to make a choice. You can be both religious and have whatever sexual or gender identity you are and you are loved. Meeting my life partner, my fiancé, and being truly accepted. He knows everything that I've went through. He knows the stuff that I speak about publicly. He knows the stuff that I don't speak about publicly. So being able to just be completely authentically myself and to be accepted for that was massive. Having him and then having my chosen family and friends that are just part of our life, were involved in their lives, with their children's lives, or just, just being having that support system gave me a great deal of strength. Congratulations on getting engaged. That is, that's very lovely. How did you meet your partner? We're both uh, teachers. He was already in the school and then I joined. We found ourselves single <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and then one Christmas night out, that, that's, that's how that happened. And then, so we were colleagues and then friends. Uh, and then we got together, much to many people's excitement. We moved in together, got a house, got a dog. And then he proposed and yeah, 17-year-old Justin could not have even envisaged that as an option. So uh, yeah, really, really looking forward to, to, to our wedding and being able to to celebrate. In response to the Times, Carol said, I have never held myself out as a provider of, nor do I offer counselling to any client with the aim to change their sexuality. To the best of my knowledge, there are no UK therapists who have ever described themselves as conversion therapists. The term conversion therapy is an imposed term, is misleading and forces an implied definition of conversion. I took, quote-unquote, Rachel at her word and sought to serve her in a bid to help her come to terms with her true self. Next episode, 
on Thinking Straight. Feeling any straighter? Definitely not feeling any straighter. Feeling a bit sadder. When Dad says, you look beautiful in that dress, or, oh, you're so pretty, it's just the male affirming the feminine in you. Mm-hmm. And can mirror how you, how you feel about yourself in terms of how men see you. Exploiting a person's most vulnerable state to try and tell you that who you are, your sexuality, your identity, your orientation, that there's something broken and wrong with who you are. I think that is absolutely criminal. I know these are really deep questions, but did you enjoy it sexually? I mean, did you get pleasure from it at all? You've been listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to The Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid, with editorial support from Asia Fuchs. The series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kizeltuk. The next episode of Thinking Straight will be in the Stories of Our Times feed next Friday. You can also find the series in the Reporter feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116-123 or Switchboard, the LGBT helpline on 03-00-330-0630. Open from 10am till 10pm every day. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon 